There's an old rabbinic statement that says that Scripture, the Bible, is like a many-sided jewel. And that every time you turn it, the way the light hits it, shows you another aspect of its beauty. That every time you take Scripture and you read it, there's something new that might pop out at you. Some of you know this to be true. Some of you, you've read your Bibles before, like in its entirety. Some of you, you read it regularly, maybe little portions. And you've read passages over and over again. And you find that sometimes what stands out in that passage might be different than other times. Depending on what you're going through in life or what you've learned or how someone has shared with you, you might get a new insight by the gift of the Holy Spirit about what that scripture says and how it applies in your life. Scripture is something that God is speaking through to us all the time. And each of us in our uniqueness is invited by God to read through it and through God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, understand it better. And we can find that when we read stuff over and over again, new things pop out at us doesn't mean that they weren't there before. They were. It's just new to us. And this morning, I want to take some time to turn that jewel a bit of the passage we read last week. To turn that gem in such a way that the light might hit it differently and we could see what God is saying to us maybe in a new way. Every time we come to Scripture, it is important that we recognize that this is a gift from God for our use, but it wasn't written to us initially. That the Holy Spirit guides us in our understanding of it, just as he guided those who wrote it long ago. And that it is inspired for a situation, and we can learn a lot from it. And this morning, or maybe later on in the evening, whenever you might be watching this, if you're not watching it live, we're going to explore what the Spirit might be saying to us about who we really are based on Ephesians chapter 1. If you were listening last week, or you watched last week, or sometime during the week, or maybe even just this morning, we explored a bit the same passage, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. But I want to read it again, and I want to emphasize a word or a few words that might actually have so much more meaning to us than we realize. Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus, and he wants them to understand to believe correctly who God is, who they are, and why that matters. If you read through the book of Ephesians, it's kind of divided into two parts. The first few chapters are about the right beliefs, the the understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to that. And he wants his audience, including us, many years later, to understand that. Because he has a principle in mind that if we believe correctly about who we are and who God is, then we will behave correctly. That out of, as Jesus says, the overflow of our heart, our mouth will speak, so will our actions come. That when we understand, when we internalize who God says we are and who God is, we should live and act accordingly. 
And so Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, this Greek countryside church where there's probably a mixture of people, maybe a few who are from a Gentile tradition, maybe a few who are from a Hellenistic Greek Jewish tradition, meaning they were very influenced by the culture, and maybe some who were from even from Israel and who held on to the traditional beliefs. And as he was writing to them, he wants them all to understand who they are in relationship to who God is. And so he writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Through the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure with which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Keeping in mind that Paul is writing to a very mixed audience, those who maybe were Jewish from birth, like I mentioned, who kind of followed God, they had the Old Testament, they understood the teachings of Moses, uh, they followed them their whole life, and then they started to follow Jesus. And then there might be some who are from maybe a Hellenistic Jewish background, so they were people who at some point in their history were, were followers of the law, but they started to adopt and adapt to their local culture. And so they started to behave differently than those who maybe held closely to the law of the Old Testament. And then maybe there was even this other group there who were considered Gentiles, so non-Jewish persons, people who followed other gods at different times, but not the God of the Old Testament. And they were coming to start to follow Jesus. And through all these different groups of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different, different economic status even, They were coming together, and they started to all follow Jesus together. In the midst of all of them following Jesus, there's probably some challenges that were there. There are probably those who were Jewish from birth who kind of held that over some people. They would say, well, you know, I've always done this. I've always been following God. I've been always following the rules, and so I deserve some special treatment. 
And there were those who maybe did not follow God all the time, and maybe they felt lesser of themselves because of it. There's likely some tension between the different groups that were there who had different experiences of God and with Jesus. But still, they all came together, and as Paul writes, it's to fulfill unity of all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And Paul writes this letter explicitly using the terms like in Christ or in him over and over again to help them understand that who they are isn't necessarily their cultural background, but who they are is in Christ. And Paul uses a very specific term to indicate this. Adoption. Many of us are familiar with the idea of adoption. Maybe some of you have adopted children, or maybe you were even adopted yourself. And we understand that it means that there are parents who are seeking a child, and so they look through agencies, through different means, and then they choose that child to be their family. And we understand that when you adopt a child, they take your last name, they're your family, legally in all ways possible. So they're no longer just an adopted child, they're your child. And in the Roman world that Paul was writing this letter to, the idea, the concept of adoption had even greater implications than maybe we even realize. Because adoption was something that wasn't all that uncommon in his world. But not in the same way as it is in ours. Adoption was primarily, in his world, done by people of high status. So the most wealthy individuals or the leaders of cities, countries, armies, those people were able to adopt children. And they adopted children for a specific purpose. Today, we may adopt someone because we want to increase our family or we care for that someone. In his world, while that might be true, there might be care and concern for someone or love even, that they would be sharing, their reasons for adopting were so that their name could continue on. In the ancient Roman world, those who were wealthy, those who had power, wanted their legacy to last. And legacies were passed down through sons. In their world, daughters didn't have the same legal rights as sons would. And so if someone who was a leader maybe of the Senate or maybe a leader of an army and quite wealthy or maybe even an emperor only had daughters, they knew that their legacy would die with them. And so it wasn't uncommon that a very wealthy, powerful person would seek out someone to adopt. And oftentimes it would be someone of a lesser status. So wealthy people didn't adopt from other wealthy families. Oftentimes they would adopt from slaves they actually owned. Sometimes it was from family members who were of lesser standing. But rarely would it be of someone of equal standing as them. And the reason they did this is so that they would adopt someone from somewhere and they would be brought into their families and they would take all of the legal standing of that family and be made new. They were no longer associated with that lesser, poorer family. They were part of this family. They were part of this inheritance. And while 
daughters were occasionally in the Roman world adopted, most of the time it was sons. And it was sons for that specific purpose to ensure that legacies would live on. There are some incredibly famous legacies that lived on because of adoption. One was Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar adopted his nephew, Augustus, and he became the first emperor. He took all of the legal standing that Julius Caesar had. He took all of the legal wealth that Julius Caesar had. Adoption in the Roman world was a permanent standing. If you were adopted into a family, everything of that family became your family. Nothing could change it. There was no legal way to disconnect an adopted child from their adoptive family. They were one. They would have the same legal rights as someone who was born into that family. And nothing anyone could do could change that. The legal agreement was all of the inheritance, all of the legacy would equally go to an adopted son as it would have a son born into that family. Paul uses this term to describe us. He says here in verse 5 that in love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Paul uses this very real, very legal term to say that God chose in love you. Not just so that, you know, there was a legal requirement that he had to have a son. That's not it at all. He chose you before time to love. He chose you to be part of his family. He uses the term sonship, again, because in his world, daughters wouldn't have the same standing. But he uses that term for both men and women in Ephesus and here today. He says, you are adopted to sonship through Christ. That because of Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. So you have all of the legal rights and privileges as someone who was born into God's family, Jesus. You are seen differently than someone who is not in God's family. God chose you and nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from the love that God has shown you because he chose you to be his child. Paul uses this term for a mixed bag of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and says, even though you may have come from somewhere else, even though you may have believed something differently, even though you might not have been wealthy or you may have been wealthy, even though, even though, even though you are in love, adopted to sonship, it doesn't matter what their background was, they were now part of God's family And they had rights to all of the inheritance God has for them. So it didn't matter that they weren't Jewish from birth. It didn't matter that they didn't go to Torah school or synagogue on Saturdays. It didn't matter because God chose them, chose you in Christ. 
Likely, likely in their world, when they were hearing this for the first time, as someone was reading it to them, there were kind of mixed emotions going on. People who maybe felt like they were lesser because they came from a different part of the world or had a different culture or had different amounts of money or family status, who didn't feel like they measured up to be part of God's family, likely it was quite shocking for them, quite alarming. They probably didn't know how to handle it. Maybe even for you to hear that God loves you so much that he chose you is hard to hear. Maybe you don't feel like you're worth that much. Maybe you don't feel like you're worth loving. Sometimes we have feelings and they dominate our thinking. And our feelings might be based on experiences, based on what other people have said or done to us, based on what we've done ourselves. And we think we're not good enough. We don't deserve it. How could God ever love us? And so we push God away. We push other people away. We hide behind masks because we don't feel like we're worth loving. But feelings aren't facts. What you feel today isn't necessarily true. Feelings are not facts. We could feel differently depending on if we ate a bowl of cereal before we went to bed, or if we got into a car accident, or if we got into a fight with someone in our house, or even if it just started to rain, our feelings shift and change. And if we let them guide us, if we let them tell us what's true, we will believe lies. Feelings are not facts. Feelings are not always true. It doesn't mean that feelings are bad. It just means feelings are not always true. So you might be thinking, well, I don't feel like God is with me, or I don't feel like God loves me. Well, feelings are not facts. What you believe is not always true. And our culture struggles with this so much because we let feelings decide for us what is true. You know, if I always let my feelings decide what is true, it wouldn't always be good for me. Just this week, I was hanging a picture in my office, and I had the feeling like it was level. And so I hung it, I looked at it, kept looking at it, kind of different angles looking around, and it, it, I thought it, it felt level. And so I hung it until I took some more steps back, and I realized it was quite crooked. Feelings are not facts. I could feel like it was done right, but if I didn't actually take the truth Use a level. I could be wrong. I don't know until I have facts to back it up. Feelings are not facts. What you feel is not always true. You may say, well, I don't feel like I am very lovable. I don't feel like I am good enough for God. I don't feel like God really cares. But feelings are not facts. So what are the facts? What is the truth? God says you are chosen. God says you are loved. God says that in that love, you were adopted. He has made you his child. 
And no matter how you feel, today, tomorrow, nothing can ever change that. He chose you. Doesn't matter what you feel. The truth is, in you, God sees someone who is worth it. God sees someone who's worth loving. And that in Christ, he died and rose again for you, for the forgiveness of sins, so that how we were missing the mark and being human can be corrected. So we no longer have to live on our feelings, just doing whatever we think is right. We now have truth in Christ. In Christ, you were chosen. In love, he predestined you for adoption to sonship. You are given every privilege possible by God, the greatest of inheritance, and there's nothing you can do to change that. In fact, there's nothing anyone can do. You are not powerful enough to stop God from loving you. You are not powerful enough to stop God from choosing you. You just can't. You're not. Your feelings are not facts. And the fact is, God chose you. You might not even know it yet, but God has chosen you. And it's up to you, yes, to respond to that. Respond to that love. But you cannot stop him from loving you, even if you don't feel like you deserve it. We need to live not on our feelings, but on the facts, on the truth. We need to live and act out of the knowledge that God chose you. And who you are is not dependent on how you feel today or tomorrow, but is ultimately found in who God says you are. You are his child. Who you are cannot change because you don't feel it. The truth is you are his child. You might not be living like it. You might not feel like it. But it doesn't change the truth. God doesn't change that ever. Feelings are not facts. And the fact is, God loves you. God chose to walk the earth in Jesus, to die and rise again for the forgiveness of sins, to be made whole, to give you life in all of its fullness. And even if you don't feel it, it doesn't mean it's not true. So how do we live based on this truth? What difference does it make for you to know that you are not powerful enough to stop God from loving you. Nothing you can do can stop that. He is the one who's powerful, and in his power, he chooses to love you. And nothing you do can stop that. He will always love you. You might not respond, you might not give it back, but it doesn't change him. You are not powerful enough to change God and change What's true? So what difference does that make in your life? Knowing that you can't change how God feels about you. How can you live differently knowing 
that what you feel isn't always true. And what God knows about you ultimately is. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the same today as you were yesterday and you will be tomorrow. You are consistent. You are you, wholly different than everything else. And that even though our relationships with other people might change day to day, our relationship with you is firmly rooted in the truth that you chose us and that in love you adopted us. Holy Spirit, I pray that we know that to be true, that when we don't feel like we are loved or even worth loving, you remind us of the truth that feeling is not facts, and that the truth is that you chose us, God. You chose us even before we could respond. You knew you would love us, and you made us to be loved, and we are worth it in your eyes. You see us differently than we see ourselves. Help us to see ourselves like you see us. God, I thank you that in Jesus, in you coming to walk this earth, to be with us, to die, to rise again for the forgiveness of our sins, to make us whole so that we could have life in all of its fullness, you've created a way for us to be adopted into your family, that it's nothing we've done, but it's all you. And we just need to respond and live in that truth. God, help us to live in that truth and help us, Holy Spirit, to invite others to know the truth that God has chosen all of us before we even realized to be loved, to say we are worth it, and wants us to be his family, but we need to respond. Help us to respond and help us to invite others, Holy Spirit, to know that the God who made us loves us. That in Christ we can be made anew and we are adopted into this family. And that Holy Spirit, you are with us always to remind us. Help us to be your followers, God. Help us to know this love and live like it's true every day. Because it is true. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.